Good, good, good. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you, Brian, the prop man. Oh, good morning. It's a good day to be here together. Uh, we're closing out our series on forgiveness today, and I've entitled this, it's, it sounds like a BuzzFeed article, but it's like the six, or no, it's the five secrets to being a good forgiver. Doesn't that sound like BuzzFeed to you? <laughs> Anyhow, uh, I, I, I wanted to make sure that we hit all five today, so we're going to get going right away. Um, I want to start with a story of something that had happened the week before Easter. Busy week around here. Lots of setting up, lots of meetings and to-dos. And a gal named uh, Raina stopped by, and she has been here more than once uh, since COVID. She's come to our food bank for help. She's come and received some gas gift cards in the past. And so she showed up unexpectedly and we didn't happen to have any gas cards on hand. So I told her, hey, I'm gonna go to the market, I'll run and go grab one, and I'll meet you right back here. So I, I rescheduled a meeting, I actually was meeting with Michael Salas, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll be back, I'll go and get it. I ran to the market, picked out a great Visa card, because she had hollered at me, don't forget, Visa cards work better than gas cards. And I was like, gotcha. So I go, and then I come back, I bless her and send her on her way. And I think to myself, this is such a great week to be a care pastor. I just love this. I love this job that I do. I get to help people. <laughs> Later that morning, I receive an email from the church down the street. Hey, Raina stopped by. She says she thinks you're pregnant. I'm like, ah, gosh, ouch. <laughs> Ouch, ouch, oh wait, there's something, oh, sorry, it's just a rock in my shoe. That was the ouch. Anyhow, uh, I don't know if the axiom is true that when you're shopping for a Subaru, all you see on the road are Subarus, but I do know this. When you study the topic of forgiveness for a month, you are going to have opportunities to practice it. <laughs> Uh, since the month that I've been studying forgiveness, God's given me big and small opportunities to practice forgiveness. And the Raina story, of course, is super easy to share because she and I didn't have a relationship to have to repair. There was no conflict resolution, no awkward conversation. There was no crying or sleepless nights because that's what raw forgiveness processing looks like, at least for me. It was just more like a little sharp stone that had been stuck in my shoe, a sharp stone of insecurities filled with a month, from a month filled with injuries and Girl Scout cookies. But it was nothing more than a sharp stone. Life is full of ouch moments where we choose to forgive and let go of the offense, or not, but stones, they happen. As Christ followers, it's important we get this right, at least as right as we can. What do we do with the rocks of offense, injury, and injustice that come our way? Jesus got it right, which means we want to as well. Today I'm going to share with you the five secrets of a good forgiver and hope they benefit you as much as they have me this month. So let's pray. 
Jesus, I just ask that you would highlight for anyone the words that you want them to hear today, and that when we leave, we're better for it, glorifying you. In your name, amen. If I ask this room a question like, why should we be good forgivers? You may first ask, what do you mean by forgive? Before I answer that question, what do you mean by forgive? In the, the, the biblical definition we're gonna use today for forgiveness is the freeing a person from guilt and its consequences, including punishment. So freeing someone from guilt and consequences even punishment. So now if I ask the room, why should we be good forgivers? There are probably two different camps here. One camp would say, well, the Bible tells us to forgive, and so that's why we should do it. This is, I'm calling this camp the like just do it group, the just do it, because Jesus said it. So um, they reflect back on Matthew 18 where Jesus and Peter are talking, and Peter's like, how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody who offends me? And Jesus says, uh, or no, Peter's like, should I do it seven times? Because that seems like a lot. And uh, Jesus says, no, not seven times. 70 times seven. So the just do it camp, everybody's whipping out their calculator and they're like, okay, all right, the Bible tells me plus 490 times, that's how often I need to forgive. Just do it, just do it. And not that that camp needs any extra backup for their just action, just do it action step. But I wanna flip really fast over to the Lord's Prayer and there's gonna be a little quiz here at the end. So I'm gonna read part of it and then I'm gonna ask you to fill in the next line, okay? So nobody look. Don't look at the Lord's Prayer in your, in your Bible app. Let's read it out on the screen. Uh, Jesus is talking about how to pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. No, (laughs) it isn't, that is not the next line. This takes us up to verse 13. Do you know what verse 14 is? This is the PS that Jesus put in in the Lord's Prayer. This is like after he sums it up and that's his prayer template. This is what comes immediately following. If you forgive other people for their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, then your Father will not forgive your offenses. That actually is the the verse that follows immediately after the template of the Lord's Prayer. It's only in later Greek transcripts that we find that part that you all just said, for thine is a kingdom, and you guys all sing that probably also. But who knew forgiveness was so important that that is in the section of the Lord's Prayer, immediately following that template. So anyhow, it's compelling. And I know that the just do it camp, like you guys were already convinced that it's a good idea to forgive. So anyhow, if you're in that camp, I want you to know your sermon is done 
and the back half of this message is for everyone else, okay? <laughs> everyone else who is saying, you know, forgiveness actually isn't as easy as just doing it. Someone's hurt me in a way that feels far more than a sharp pebble in my shoe. Or I've just tried doing it and that didn't work. Or if I forgive them, I feel like it lets them get off easy. So for this group, let's talk about this. There are a couple concepts related to forgiveness. We're gonna define some terms, okay, before we move into the next part. You've often heard of grace and mercy. They go together so often, and a lot of people are fuzzy about what's the one but not the other. I don't really know what, which one to use in which circumstance. So I wrote a definition for, for grace that is going to help you remember, because I put in a couple other hard Gs. Grace is giving something good, which is undeserved. Giving something good, which is undeserved. I liken this to my husband and I having three easy teenagers. Because anyone who knew us as teenagers knows we did not deserve that, okay? It was undeserved, and we had easy teenagers. Okay, so then mercy. What is mercy? It is not giving something hard, which was deserved. Not giving something hard, which was deserved. If I go speeding past Arbor Church on Woodenville Snohomish Road, and I'm like going 70, right? I, I need to get pulled over, <laughs> and the guy needs to give me a ticket, right? The officer needs to give me a ticket for speeding. I deserve that. But if he looks at me, and for whatever reason decides to just make it a warning, that's mercy, right? Because I actually deserved the ticket. I deserve to pay a fine, and if he's only gonna call it a warning, that's total mercy on, for me. So these two traits are often known as sides of the same coin, two sides of the same coin, which is called love, okay? And these two traits are something that God himself identifies himself with really strongly. I'm gonna flip us back in the, back in the Old Testament, Exodus 34. God is going to have a one-on-one -on -one with Moses. They've, they've built a relationship of sorts up to this point. And like Moses has done the Red Sea thing, he's like freed everyone, he's doing the Ten Commandments action, and God is making a covenant with him. And Moses is like, you know what would really help me in this moment? It, it would be like if I could know you on a next level. Like, could I see you? And God's like, dude, like, you, you actually can't even see me. I'm like, my glory would blow you away. But here's what I'll do. I'll stick you in a rock, and then I'm going to pass by you and introduce myself. So they do that. Moses gets into a rock. God comes by, and he's going to introduce himself. And this is what he says. The Lord passes before him, and he's like introducing himself. Hey, I'm the Lord. I'm Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I want to mention the power of the first mention. I want to mention first mention. So, <laughs> sorry. When you introduce yourself to someone, you usually lead by the most relevant attribute that you want them to know about yourself. 
So if I meet somebody out here in the Arbor lobby, for example, and it's their first time ever, I'm like, oh, dude, I'm Allison. I'm a pastor here. So they can like sort out who I am and like, I don't know, complain to me (laughs) or something, I don't know. Um, But if I go over to like my husband's work function, I don't go, hi, I'm Allison, I'm the pastor here at Arbor. I say, hi, I'm Allison, I'm John's wife, right? I'm like associating myself with the context and the thing that's most important. So for the Lord to introduce himself to Moses and lead off with grace and mercy, that must mean it's really important, right? So the character of God being known first and foremost with grace and mercy is important to us, not just because he's providing us this awesome role model to follow, but it's because his spirit that lives in us enables us to be full of grace and mercy too. That is why this is so important today. It's the first secret of good forgivers. You need to know it's God's spirit that enables us to be good, to be full of grace and mercy. Our capacity to be merciful, our ability to extend grace and forgive is present only because he's present in us. That's why we're able to do that. And I have found that the more we yield to the Spirit's work in our life, the more that we're finding ourselves able to and wanting to forgive. The converse is also true, though. The more we resist God's work in our life, the, least in, the, the less interested we are in forgiving. So how do those work, grace and mercy, how do those work in our life? Behold your example. <laughs> okay. These, these bottles are filled with different levels of fluid, right? Different levels. And one of these is your heart, okay? The, the bottles that surround you are either your family or your friend's circle, or maybe it's your church family, but you all have been impacted by an injury or an offense, okay? Something, something wrong has happened to you, and you all are dealing with it in different ways. You've, you've talked it through together. You've processed the pain. You've wrestled. You've come to a place where you think, okay, I can forgive the offense, to a certain degree on my own. Some people more than others, <laughs> right? You may be thinking, I, I can barely muster any forgiveness for this person who has, who has wronged us. Or maybe you're a little bit more down the road. You're like, you know what? I can't quite close the gap altogether on my own, but I'm like almost there. But each of these people has gotten to a place where they agree, I'm done, I'm stuck. There is not one more piece of information regarding the offense that will help me close the gap. I can't get all the way up to the top on my own. Or you're thinking, there is not one more conversation I could ever have with anyone who will get me up to the top. I've just, I've gotten as far as I can go. I'm stuck. So here's where God's grace and mercy makes up the difference. He comes in, right? And he, it's his spirit that fills you up and fills, makes up the difference. He's helping you forgive. 
He's helping you reach all the way to where he wants you to be. It's not you and your strength or you and your, uh, I don't know, your will. It's not one more piece of information, not one more conversation. It's not more time. It's God's spirit who's able to make the difference. So what is your role then? Your role is to welcome this and to allow this and to ask God, dude, I, I literally can't get any further. I'm stuck. You're going to have to do this, God. Do the thing that you do and fill me up. Fill up the rest. In this way, forgiveness is a choice. It's not a feeling. And it's asking God to do what he does best on your behalf. What's great about this is it's not requiring you to be the judge and jury, deliberating how much punishment or time or whatever that your wound needs to be healed. Because you know what? Maybe the person who wounded you is no longer living. And forgiving them looks interrupted, incomplete, or impossible. God is able to step in and fill that gap for you between what you're able to manage and what he is able to do for you. God's spirit enables us to be full of grace and mercy. We're gonna look at a passage now that shows Jesus in action working with some folks who hold stones of offense of their own. And we're gonna see the rest of our five secrets to good forgiving come from this. John 8, verses 1 through 11, is titled, The Woman Caught in Adultery. Here's the context of this. Jesus is teaching at the temple, and there's lots of people around. Um, He's at a point in his ministry where there's been lots of teaching and healing and miracles, and all of that has won the devotion of his followers. They're bought in. But there's a people group who is not bought in, and that's the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They don't like Jesus. They're threatened by him. They're trying to figure him out. There's a lot of sub-themes that we could talk about in this passage, but for the sake of focus today, we're only going to be talking about forgiveness. So here's the passage. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Hey, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to Stoner, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. If I give the crowd the benefit of the doubt, I'm going to say there were at least some in the crowd who genuinely were really upset by what has just happened. Someone had been caught breaking the community code, the community's moral code, and God's law. The way that she's been handled here 
is shocking. It's like undignified and demoralizing and everybody's super escalated. Like their shock and their emotion is like super high right now. So those people are like genuinely upset at what's happening, but there's some remainders, the, the Pharisees, who are just wanting really to test Jesus in this moment. They may not have like really considered the woman's humanity in the situation. She's kind of more of a prop in a zealous drama than anything else. And at the very least, the Pharisees are super upset that the law of Moses had been broken. Her accusers are standing with stones in hand, ready to serve justice and take her life. You gotta know there are bigger stones than this, right? <laughs> Use your imagination. So if this morning we have seen offenses as rocks or stones, then we can imagine Jesus had the right to hold one too. He had the right to hold one too. Um, he had been sinned against. He was part of the triune God that had set up the Ten Commandments back in the day, right? He had been impacted by this woman's sin because her sin was actually against him. So when confronted to give an answer in the middle of the super high drama and wanting everyone to, him to tweet an opinion about like, what's your take on this? What's your hot take, Jesus? Um, he stoops to write. He's silent. He's giving space for emotion to settle. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. The Pharisees continued to question him, and so he stood up and replied, mm, whoever, is without the, the, whoever is without sin should throw the first stone. And then he stooped down and wrote in the dust again. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up and said, hey, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she replied. And Jesus said, hey, neither do I. Go and sin no more. At the risk of seeming simple or trite, I've pulled out the four secrets of good forgivers from this passage. These are things to keep in mind next time you feel like you've been handed a stone of offense. These add to our first secret, which was that God's spirit enables us to be full of grace and mercy. Number two is only Jesus is qualified to hold the stone. He had said, whoever is without sin should throw the first stone. And by saying whoever is without sin means that the only person there in that crowd who is qualified to execute that judgment is Jesus alone. He's the only one without sin there in the crowd. Had you ever noticed that before? Only Jesus qualifies to manage the stone of offense or of judgment. Number three, the older we are, the wiser we should be. Beginning with the oldest, they slipped away one by one, dropping their stones behind them. I'm speaking to my peers here. 
silver tips. <laughs> you know that I know that you know that we know that we have sinned many times in our lives by omission or commission. Our lives have not been sinless, and we know the many times that we have been in the wrong. So it's time for us to drop our stones of offense and go first. We need to lead as forgivers. Let your families see you forgive. Begin leaving your legacy as being gracious and merciful. But even if you're younger than a boomer or a Gen Xer, keep this in mind. As the years go by, you will become more and more aware of your own failings that give rocks of offense to others. And also as time goes by, you'll encounter more occasions of wounding. Those rocks pile up, man. And even if they're small, once they start adding up, boy, do they get heavy. So the best practice leads us to number four. Put your rock down. Put your rock down. Taking those rocks of offense and throwing them to punish our offender or enact justice is not the choice Jesus made. Using them to hurt others because we're hurt, that's not what Jesus modeled. Remember, sins can be against a community or an individual, but they are also against God. And though he was entitled by law to stone the woman, he did not. He did not. Even storing up those rocks, or sometimes we like refuse to part with them because just in case I need to throw it later. <laughs> Never know when I might need to. Or we kind of show it off as a souvenir of our pain to other people. Like, yeah, do you see my pain? Do you see my offense? Did you see what they did? Do you see this? Look at me holding it. So those get heavy over time. So we can drop our rock, or better yet, we need to hand it to Jesus for his care. And that leads us to number five, Jesus can handle the justice part. Jesus can handle the justice part. When all was said and done, <laughs> the woman in this story was left alone with just Jesus. Just Jesus. Justice Jesus. Just. The guy she got in trouble with he wasn't there. Her accusers, they're not there. Her family, who's probably all, you know, they're all upset at home, but they're not there. It's just her and Jesus. Just Jesus, who did not condemn her, there will be no penalty or fine, no Twitter flogging, no grapevine lighting up with the hot gossip. Did you notice that we didn't read about her apology? We don't hear her confess. We don't hear her say, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? There seems to be no remorse from the woman. But I like that because an outward apology is not part of the forgiveness formula here. Okay? 
But here's the thing though, do we believe that Jesus knew her heart? Of course we do. Do we know that he thought that he, he, he could sense her shame and her regret? He knows all the context of the, the incident. Of course, we totally know that he knew all of that and that is why he was able to render this judgment that was so loving, merciful, graceful. He knew the full story. But in our limited capacity to know at that kind of a level, we are limited to enact perfect justice, aren't we? It's so with, with relief that we hand this over to Jesus. We hand him our stone and we say, dude, you do it. Like, I, I don't even know where to start with this. You do it. So justice did come in the form of mercy. He removed her consequences, set her free to go and sin no more. Friend, you hold stones in your hand that were given to you when someone hurt you. There are small ones for small offenses and big, heavy, jagged ones for the big, heavy, jagged hurt that you have. The more we carry and not forgive, the greater our burden. You may say, but if I forgive, I let people get away with hurting me. If I forgive, it means what they did didn't matter. It means I don't matter. If I forgive, it means they're not punished for what wrong they did, and that feels unjust. Friend, punishment did happen for that offense. It did happen. Justice has been served, and you can rest easy knowing that. It was on the cross that Jesus took that punishment Jesus took that offense and the punishment for it. So we don't have to carry it and be burdened any longer. It's finished. It's finished. It has been. Justice has happened. It's been paid for in full. And that means you don't have to carry that weight anymore. It's time to set it down. I open this message with a medium vulnerability story <laughs> of a sharp pebble given accidentally to me on a work day. But it would be inauthentic of me to teach about forgiveness from such a superficial place and let you infer that my only experience with offense was to be called overweight. I would rather have you know that the leadership here at Arbor understands from a deeper level what it means to live out the things that we teach. We want you to know we're doing this thing with you together. And today, you need to know that not one word has passed onto this paper casually. Each word has been weighed and filtered, trying to filter out anything trite or untested. <laughs> In 2020, I was handed a boulder of a wound by someone I considered not just a close friend, but actually a dear brother. We were co-laborers in ministry, longtime friends who had been trauma-tested, and the only end to our partnership would someday be with one of us doing the other's funeral, we promised. The stone of offense that I received was in the form of betrayal professionally spiritually and relationally. And the aftershocks, aftershocks of that betrayal touched every aspect of my life. Anyone who encountered me in the weeks following the betrayal 
couldn't help but notice my boulder and the white hot anger that surrounded it. But as it said, I sat with my anger long enough until she told me her real name was grief. And when I acknowledged that truth, I was able to get to a point where I could give that boulder to Jesus to take care of and start healing the grief and moving towards full forgiveness. The truth of the matter is, though, that some offenses are not finished with a one-and-done boulder handoff. It's been more than a year since I've handed that off, and now and then I find gravel in my pockets, reminders of the hurt that has gone before, discoveries of new new details of his betrayal that need handling. I do take a moment and I notice each stone before I hand it over to Jesus. I consider the cost of bringing this before my friend to talk about. I consider maybe bringing this before somebody who could validate my pain and help carry my burden. But increasingly more than before, I find it doesn't take me long before I just give it over to Jesus. Less tears, less time pass with those. You should know that in place of that white-hot anger is peace. Benevolence is not just restored, but it grows more and more every day. It makes me wonder that if the mercy God enacted on my behalf towards my offender has resulted in grace for me, the punishment potential I had in that stone that I gave him was replaced with something good for me, something I didn't deserve, the good gift of increasing love. As we close today, I want you to close your eyes for a moment and consider the rock that was on your chair and that you may be holding in your hand even now. I want you to consider your response to this message. You may have been in the first group of people content to be like, just do it, just forgive. Because Jesus told you to and the Lord's prayer, P.S., just cinched the deal there for you. (laughs) But if you are in the second group wrestling with the stone of offense that is in your hand, something that's been hard to put down and not throw, I want you to consider responding today as we close in worship. In your hand is a stone much like everyone else's here, but I want you to imagine it, the size and shape of the wound that you carry. Of course, the smaller, smoother ones are annoyances, trivial, incidental, unintentional wounds that were given to you. Those are light to carry for sure, but as we said, over time they add up. We need to empty our hands of even the small ones so they don't compound the weight of unforgiveness in our heart. You may picture yours as larger, though. This represents a wound that has left a gaping hole in your spirit, seeming to drain out joy and peace, or a stone that's cumbersome, oppressive, and depressing. We feel entitled to hold these stones of offense, ready to hurl them at our wrongdoer, or just carry them as proof of our martyrdom. But Jesus is calling to us in this moment, saying, hey, about whoever is without sin throws the stone and we know that that's not us the the oldest in the room know it first 
Trust me. (laughs) As we worship, I want to invite you to a time of response. If you feel led, I'd like you to take that stone, the one you struggle with dropping, and as a symbol of forgiveness and choosing mercy and grace, come drop the stone at the cross where it belongs. The prayer team will be in the back of the room to pray with you if you desire help with forgiveness or the stone that you carry. Let's worship now.